This is Man's Search for Medicine with your hosts, Brandon Smith and Zach Pope. This podcast is the result of our desire to change the standard of care for chronic disease and to make wellness and optimal health the new norm. We're seeking out the health knowledge we haven't learned in medical school, and we're connecting with innovators and thought leaders needed to drive this change. Through this learning process, we hope to excite doctors, empower patients, and challenge dogma, all while bringing humility and curiosity to the art and science of medicine. Today's episode is with Dr. Judson Brewer. Dr. Brewer is an MD, PhD psychiatrist who has established himself as a world-recognized expert in the field of habit change and the science of awareness and curiosity. After completing his undergraduate degree at Princeton, he went on to complete his medical training and doctoral research at Wash U in St. Louis. He continued on to Yale for his psychiatry residency and chief residency, and he's now an associate professor of psychiatry at the Warren Alpert Medical School at Brown University. He's also the director of research and innovation at the renowned Mindfulness Center at Brown University, and he's a research affiliate at MIT here in Boston. During his productive research career, Dr. Brewer has studied the underlying neural mechanisms of mindfulness using fMRI and EEG neurofeedback. He's incredibly well-published with numerous peer-reviewed articles and book chapters. His TED Talk has had a massive impact with almost 15 million views now here at the end of 2019. He's been featured in Time Magazine in the Top 100 New Health Discoveries of 2013. Forbes, BBC, NPR, Al Jazeera, Business Week, and 60 Minutes. He is the author of The Craving Mind, which explains why we get hooked on everything from substances to love to social media to thinking itself, and how we can break habits that do not serve us. As an aside, this was an incredibly well-synthesized book that is not only theoretically interesting, but it has a ton of practical steps to take if you're interested in rewiring your habits. And he actually wrote this book in two weeks, so I made sure to ask him about that process, which we discuss towards the end of the episode. In 2012, he founded Mind Sciences to provide greater access to the benefits of mindfulness-based interventions for anxiety, disordered eating, and smoking. The apps he's released, called Unwinding Anxiety, Eat Right Now, and craving to quit, combine mindfulness and motivation science to reshape habits that we desire to change. And I want to point out that these apps are not just for research, they're available to the public, and I can personally vouch for the effectiveness of Eat Right Now. If you're interested in changing your eating habits or your relationship with anxiety, Dr. Brewer has offered listeners 50% off the Eat Right Now and Unwinding Anxiety app, using the promo code ZPUA for Unwinding Anxiety and ZPERN for Eat Right Now. And you'll be able to see those promos in the show notes. You can also find out more about these apps and get access to a ton of other free resources, including free healthcare provider training at drjud.com. That's dr. J-U-D.com. If you're interested in following his work, you can also find him on Twitter at Judd Brewer.
In this episode, we discuss the neuroscience behind habit formation and why it can be so hard to change, as well as his research showing how simple awareness training is actually more effective for smoking cessation than the standard of care. We also talked about how we maybe should ditch the word mindfulness altogether and the role of psychedelics in habit change and well-being. If you find yourself wondering what changes you want to make in the new decade and how you might actually be able to do it this time, I think you might find this conversation helpful. All right, without further delay, please enjoy this episode with Dr. Judd Brewer. So um, can you tell me a little bit more about what you're doing here at the Mindfulness Center? Broadly speaking, we're really trying to understand how the mind works and develop evidence-based treatments to help people reduce suffering, everything from stress to anxiety to depression to blood pressure. And so I anticipate um, going kind of deep on some of these topics. So I think it'd be helpful to make sure we're on the same page and just for anyone who's listening to this, kind of establish some of the frameworks um, that you described in your book and just kind of uh, your work. So starting out with this kind of framework for the cue, the action, the response, uh, Thorndike, B.F. Skinner, Charles Duhigg, all that, all that kind of stuff. Okay. Yeah. So there's this mechanism that's set up to help us survive. And you can break it down to its core elements. There's this three uh, critical pieces that trigger a behavior and a reward. So you can think of, you know, you see food, that's the trigger. You eat the food, that's the behavior. And then your stomach sends this dopamine signal to your brain that says, remember what you ate and where you found it. And that, from a brain perspective, is the reward. But more accurately, it's the way that we lay down context-dependent memory, as in, We lay down memory that says, remember where this is. And the same thing is true with avoiding danger. You see the danger, you run away, and the reward is that you don't get eaten. Right. (laughs) Yeah. So that same process is at play. That's been around, you know, that's evolutionarily conserved all the way back to the sea slug. You know, Eric Kendall got the Nobel Prize in 2000 showing, you know, that we have these same basic learning mechanisms going on in, you know, a an animal with 20,000 neurons. Uh, So really evolutionarily conserved process that actually has a lot of explanatory power, not just for survival, for helping us get calories and not get eaten, but also for setting up habits in modern day. You know, it's not like our caveman brain um, is gone. It's still actually the the strongest learning process that our brain has. Mm -hmm. And in modern day, you know, most people have refrigerators. Uh, we can even, you know, we can get food 24-7. You can even pull out your app on your, you know, your phone, these weapons of mass distraction <laughs> that we have. So we can pull out our phone and we can have food delivered to us wherever we are in, you know, most major metropolitan areas. So it's a very different world now in modern day. Yet these old processes are, are still kicking around trying to help us survive. I've been particularly impressed just not just with the kind of the research that you've done and the um, and kind of the movement that you've created here, but your ability to communicate all of this through through your TED talk and your book. And you 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 commonly pull upon this lens of kind of evolution and mm-hmm. this evolutionary uh, perspective to put everything kind of um, in context. Um, and that's something I feel like is we have to 
constantly consider not just with uh, mental illness, but with, you know, all the diseases of modern times that we're dealing with. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's kind of, it's a fun challenge to not dumb down the science, but communicate it effectively. I feel like it's our responsibility as scientists to communicate what we find. Otherwise they, they get just, they get stuck in the ivory towers and then doesn't benefit anybody. Yeah. Um, But this learning process is really, you know, it's fascinating in the sense that, you know, there's even these old part, quote unquote, old parts of the brain are still really, really helpful. So for example, forming a habit is really helpful. Imagine getting up in the morning and then having to learn, relearn everything from walking to putting on your clothes, to tying your shoes, to making your coffee, to making your food, to eating your food, learning how to eat, right? Mm -hmm. All of that stuff, we would be exhausted before breakfast was over. Yeah. So learning habits is a good thing. It's helpful. It can free up our brains so that we can do, we can learn other things. But at the same time, if we're not paying attention to how those processes, uh, you know, how they work, when we are trying to change habits, we're going to hit our head against, literally hit our head against the wall. uh, And I guess figuratively as well, when we go there and say, okay, now I want to stop eating cake or whatever, because we focus on the wrong things. We're focusing on the younger parts of the brain thinking, oh, these are going to help us out, like the willpower, if there even is such a thing. Uh, yeah, we can get into that we can for get sure. Into, so I just want to highlight how it's really interesting to to really understand these old parts of the brain, which gives me so much more respect for these processes. And I and perhaps paradoxically, the more we respect and understand them, the easier it is to work with them and to change habits rather than you know using some of these methods that haven't worked historically. Yeah, I mean, I I think. I, I like the way you phrase that respect these parts of the brain because these are the things that have allowed our species to, you know, exist until now mm-hmm. um, and adapt. And I like that you kind of pointed out the importance of habits because uh, there's something that stood out to me in your book. It was uh, about how um, the more the more things that we say no to over the course of the day that are kind of like willpower decreases. Perhaps I was associated with the DLPFC or something Mm -hmm. Um, and how without having habits, without with with having to put more and more energy into saying no to things, it uh, takes away some of our freedom to to do really productive things later in the day, it seems like. Is that an accurate statement, would you say? It is. And I would even say that some of that willpower depletion science is now being challenged. Uh, But even so, whether it's true or not. Knowing how these processes work, uh, I think we even have a more nuanced understanding even the last couple of years around these things. So, for example, you know, if, if you think of habit formation, it's helpful. We can chunk a bunch of information, lay it down in memory, and then it's easily retrievable. So all, all our brain needs is a trigger and it says, OK, do that behavior. So, for example, you know, uh, cake, right? So we can look at cake and it's got a nice balance between sugar and fat and to our brain. First time we eat cake, it says, oh, calories. You know, it's got lots of fat in here. It's got lots of sugar in here. And I can I can pack those in. It's a calorie dense, you know, thing as compared to, say, broccoli. So the first time we eat that, you know, if it were just as simple as that, cake versus broccoli, our brain's going to say, okay, eat the cake because it'll help you survive. You know, you need this in case there's famine or, or shortage or whatever. 
But on top of that, there's more than that. Remember, this is about learning things in context. Mm -hmm. So think of all the times that you've had, uh, you've gone to or had a birthday party, okay? So it's not just about the calories, you know, it's not just counting calories, but it's also looking at context, like people, places, and things. So we associate eating cake at birthday parties with friends and fun and presents and, you know, ice cream and all these things. Yeah. So our brain chunks all this information. And every time we have a birthday party or go to one, it lays that down. It's like, oh, yeah, that was good. Do it again. That was good. Do it again. So the time when we're an adult, it's got that chunked information. We don't have to go back and learn, oh, is this cake, is this poisonous or is this, is this helpful? It says, cake, eat it. Right. And so we're like, well, why is it so hard to stop eating cake? <laughs> well, that's because our brains chunk this information and it's laid it down as a habit. And so don't worry about this. I got this. Just eat it. Right. Mm -hmm. We've already we've already got covered this territory ad nauseum. So the only way to change a behavior instead of like trying to say, oh, but it's high in calories. Sure, it's high in calories. But the thinking part of her brain the weakest part, youngest part from the evolutionary perspective. It's also the first that goes offline when we get stressed mm -hmm. or when we're hungry. Yeah. <laughs> so good luck. Yeah. You know, this is why our parents don't serve, you know, when they serve dinner, they don't serve cake right alongside the broccoli because <laughs> we would never eat the broccoli. It's like you eat your broccoli and you can have dessert or whatever. So, so if we know all of this, we can actually tap into that system and say, okay, how does the brain actually work? Okay, let's not rely on willpower, weakest part of the brain, if willpower even exists. Mm -hmm. But let's let's focus on how habits are formed. So if habits are formed based on laying down memory and you know getting this whole reward hierarchy in our brain, there's a part of the brain called the orbitofrontal cortex that lays that down. Can we actually tap into that? Can we hack that system itself? So what do you need to change a habit? You actually need to pay attention. Mm -hmm. So you bring awareness in, and this is actually where my lab serendipitously stumbled into, oh, well, what helps train people to be aware? Oh, mindfulness training. <laughs> you know, I'd been meditating during medical school as a way to help myself be <laughs> less freaked out. And lo and behold, 10 years later, when I was finishing up residency training and starting to do my first clinical trials, you know, there's all this work that needed to be done with addictions. And I was like, well, wait a minute, you know, maybe we could try this mindfulness training. Fast forward another 10 years, it turns out that that's what helps us change habits is bringing learning to pay attention and become aware of the of the reward value. Because that reward value that we laid down when we are five or six or eight or 10 or however many, you know, birthdays parties ago, is not the same now, but it says, oh, it's the same. It's the same. It's the same. No, you know, or, you know, it's different when we're adults. <laughs> right, right. I'd love to hear kind of more about the study you did comparing, uh, I believe it was CBT with mindfulness for uh, cigarette cravings. Is that correct? Yes, we, in one of our early clinical trials, we did a randomized controlled trial. This is when I was an uh, assistant professor at Yale. We, we did this study uh, where we randomized people that wanted to quit smoking to get mindfulness training or the American Lung Association's Freedom from Smoking, which is a cognitive you know, behavioral training-based therapy. Mm -hmm. you know, you, um, all the things that CBT does to help people quit smoking, that's, they package that together. So we randomized people to get mindfulness training or this gold standard treatment. And we didn't tell people what they were going to get because we didn't want to bias them coming into the study. Yeah. So the people that came into the mindfulness group we sent them home on the first night with homework to smoke. <laughs> <laughs> that seems a little counterintuitive. <laughs> and they're like, is this the experiment? You know, what's going on here? 
But the instruction was smoke, but pay attention as you smoke. And that was critical because that gets at this reward-based learning piece. You got to pay attention to the reward. Reward-based learning isn't based on the behavior. It's based on the reward of the behavior. So if it were just based on the behavior, we'd just say stop smoking or mm-hmm. stop eating, which is the typical diet advice that we right. get. Just stop. Just eat some salad instead of cake. Yeah. You know, it's simple. That's calories the out education. Versus, you right. Know. <laughs> and that's what I learned in medical school, right? Absolutely. Calories we're out versus calories, that, calories in. Yeah, yeah. We're, still, we're, still, <laughs> we're still there. I mean, got some the, work to do. <laughs> the formula is correct. But it's, it's more just complex not, than that too. It's not clinically like that's just not what we do in the clinic. Like we can educ- we can tell our patients to eat salad instead of cake, but it doesn't work, right? That right. other if if it worked, then nobody would be obese. So yeah. every system is perfectly designed to get the results it gets, and so we're just we're kind of pounding a square peg into a round hole. We're just not we're not getting it as a system. Yes. Yeah, that square peg is trying to tackle the thinking part of the brain, which is what, you know, as physicians we're like right. we're very logical beings. <laughs> kind of bringing a little bit of bias to the equation. <laughs> right. But it's like, well, as people, <laughs> we are emotional beings, you know, it we're like thinking beings in an emotional body. The emotions, you know, the the feeling body is what drives behavior. It's not yeah. the thinking brain. So anyway, if we back to this study, mm-hmm. what we figured was, well, reward-based learning is based on reward. Let's have people pay attention to the actual reward right now. Not the reward that was like, I'm 13 and I'm going to rebel against my parents or I'm going to be cool at school or whatever. You know, 13, that gets chunked. And now modern day, we're like, oh, yeah, same, same. It's not the same. <laughs> that was, you know, I had a guy that came in who'd been smoking 40 years. So he'd been reinforcing that process. Literally, we calculated it 293,000 times, plus or minus 10,000. Hmm. But he came in and we had him pay attention as he was smoking. And he's like, how did I not notice this before? Well, it was a habit. You weren't paying attention. Yeah. You were probably distracting yourself as you were smoking. So we have people pay attention and they start realizing that cigarettes taste like shit. <laughs> and there, the reward value gets updated which taps right into that reward-based learning mechanism and says, hey, oh, this isn't so great. And so it's easier for them to change that behavior because they're not as excited to do it anymore. Not because they're telling themselves to quit smoking. They all told themselves to quit smoking already. It didn't work. But it's about getting into their feeling body and saying, wow, this doesn't feel good. Yeah. And it's... It, I feel like it would be easy to kind of demonize habits, you know, because they're the they're the things that perpetuate these addictions. But from an evolutionary perspective, I mean, the habits were crucial. It seems like, at least from my perspective, to uh, decrease the amount of energy that was necessary to navigate daily life because we were in this uh, kind of this place of scarcity, um, which made me think. Um, I, I often maybe a little bit too dogmatically. Uh, label things kind of like, oh, I'm I'm operating from a place of scarcity right now or a place of abundance right now. Do you see that as being analogous to this idea of contraction and expansion that you've talked about a bit? And I guess if you could define what you mean by uh, contraction and expansion, because I think that's a really helpful way of looking at things. Yeah, let's so let's walk into the contraction expansion bit. I'm, and I'm not sure. <laughs> I think they might be orthogonal to the scarcity, but we'll we'll see. We'll we'll walk into that and see. Okay. Because uh, I'll have to I'll have to think about that a little bit, but basically, so let's think of of contraction and expansion, or closed versus open states. Uh, we can call it, think of these mental or mental and physical states that are literally uh, we can feel them. Uh, so, for example, does it feel open or closed when you are afraid? 
How, how would uh, you say? Closed. Closed, sure, yeah. yeah. How about when you're anxious? Closed. How about when you feel joyful? Expansive. Okay. And yeah. Yeah. So if you think about closed states and when we're afraid, or let's go back to the evolution. Uh, when we are being chased by that proverbial saber-toothed tiger, our job is to make ourselves as small an object as possible and protect our vital organs, right? Mm. So that feeling of closed down literally is protective, right? I'm going to protect myself. Somebody's going to punch me, you know, physically or, you know, even um, psychologically. If somebody's attacking me, I'm going to feel closed down. So we all know what that feels like. It's not like we have to create some operational definition and teach it to people. We all know what that feels like. And we also know what the opposite feels like. If we know what closed feels like, we can know what open feels like. And there are uh, physical and mental states that literally feel more open when we are joyful, when we're connected with somebody you know we're having really good conversation um, that feels more open right mm -hmm. when we are curious we feel more open and i think in fact i think these line up very nicely with carol dweck's uh, uh, growth and fixed mindset right. so fixed mindset i would think of as more closed where we're closed off to new ideas uh and growth mindset being you know we're open we're exploring um and these even fit interestingly with ideas around around curiosity you know so there are even two types of curiosity one's called deprivation curiosity when we have to find the answer to something we're like oh what was that famous actor's name and you know and it's like that scratch that we have to itch that feels closed and contracted until we have to until we get that you know it's like that destination when we get there then we're rewarded um whereas the opposite of that is interest curiosity we're just enjoying the journey of exploration not looking for anything in particular and so you know the the deprivation curiosity feels closed and the uh, interest curiosity feels more open it seems like every time that we open a chrome browser and look and look something up on the internet that kind of fits into a little bit of this deprivation curiosity not really open just like very targeted very kind of i need to find the answer to this and I have to imagine that reinforcing that's probably one of the contributors to kind of where we're at right now, right? It is. Well, you can think of that in terms of reward-based learning. So that fits negative reinforcement perfectly. You don't know the answer to something. There's the trigger. The behavior is to frantically you know, look it up on Google. And unfortunately, these you know our, our phones uh, are perpetuating this because we can look these up at any moment, any you know day or night. So there's the behavior. And then the reward is we get that little hit of, oh, thank you. I scratched that itch because my trivia now has been answered. You know, it's like, oh, what, um, you know, what mammal has the fastest heart rate? Well, I can look it up. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Hummingbirds. Oh, yeah. wow. Hummingbirds. Wow. Who, I mean, yeah. to hummingbird enthusiasts, that might be a great Very thing. Very important thing. But for the rest of us, we look it up, we scratch the ditch, and then we move on with our day. Yet we're reinforcing that process to do that more and more and more. No wonder we're so distracted, yeah. <laughs> you know, because like every little scratch, every little itch that comes along, we can now scratch as compared to just learning. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't know the answer to that. Let me move on. It's like, no, I don't know the answer to that. I'm going to look it up, you know, in the middle of a conversation you know, with somebody, with my boss. And it's like, oh, I need to know that trivia. And our, you know, our boss is like, what the heck are you doing? I was giving you your job evaluation. But but I needed to know what mammals had the highest heart rate. <laughs> like, well, and you need to look for a new job. Yeah, right. <laughs> so so is, it, is it accurate to say that <clears throat> because of the close temporal um, relationship between this cue, um, the interest in looking something up, and then being able to quickly 
look it up, get that reward. Um, are we, as kind of a society, are we increasing our dopamine like threshold collectively? I don't know if that's too simplistic, but it seems like we keep raising the bar, raising the bar, raising the bar, and then things that maybe used to be more satisfying, like um, one-on-one interactions, like being in nature, like following your breath, like things like uh, times of peace, like these from a dopaminergic standpoint aren't really meeting that threshold. Is that is there any truth in that? Is that an accurate way to look at that? I, I think there's there's some pieces to that, that that certainly ring true. So the more we scratch those itches, you know, it's like poison ivy, it spreads. And so we, uh, we are literally training ourselves to scratch more. So when we train ourselves to scratch more, we spend all of our time scratching, we don't actually get to see if there are other things that are rewarding. Mm-hmm. So if we, you know, if we do that all the time, then we're not actually stepping back and saying, oh, is this a good idea? We're just constantly scratching. So you talked about these other rewards. I think of this as, um, you know, our brain, there's a part of the brain called the orbitofrontal cortex that actually stores all these reward values. You know, it's like, okay, chocolate better than broccoli, all this stuff. In fact, uh, what we're studying now, and, and this seems intuitively obvious, but we're doing the studies to confirm it, closed states actually feel more painful than open states. Yet, if we're just constantly spending our time in closed states and chasing, you know, closed states, we're not going to actually be able to find that bigger, better offer of those open states. So I think of the OFC as as this part of the brain that's always looking for the BBO. It's always looking for that bigger, better offer. Mm -hmm. But if we're if we're only telling it that excitement or you know dopaminergic states, those restless, you know, got to have this, scratch that itch, get the relief from the scratch, scratching of the itch, even though we created the itch in the first place, you know, that's the best we've got. It's going to say this is as good as it gets, and we're going to keep doing it. But as soon as we start to taste the 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 open states. And our brain says, wow, that feels better. Then we're going to naturally start seeking those out because they just feel better. Yeah, I I like the comparison that you draw between um, excitation and happiness because I think excitement gets conflated as the thing that we need to be moving towards. You know, it does. And when people look at happiness, they often equate excitement with happiness. But if you had to pick which one feels more open and which one feels more close, joy or excitement? Yeah, I mean, definitely joy. It feels mm-hmm. more open. Yeah, and which one feels has a restless quality to it? Excitement for sure, because you immediate as soon as you feel it, you you notice that you're there's a, at least a little bit of you that's afraid that when it's going to go out. When is this going to end? And then cr- like not being able to look past that and just being like, oh, I just don't want this to end. I don't want this to end. <laughs> and um, you know what? That's for there's a survival mechanism in there. So that's dopamine. So dopamine fires when we learn something new. And then that dopamine firing goes from receipt of that reward to anticipation. Okay, that's what I was going to ask you about. Yeah, so it comes up. So it says, okay, I understand the chocolate tastes, uh, chocolate or chocolate cake tastes good or whatever. So our brain, when we see chocolate cake, that dopamine fires now in anticipation of eating the cake, not when we eat it. And it says, and the reason for that is it says, go get those calories. Motivation. Right? Yeah. Get off your butt and go eat the cake. So that motivation, that excitement says, do something. So there's this restless quality that gets us out there and motivated to to act. That's what it's for, motivated behavior. It's really different than joy 
because joy isn't you know it's just this this feeling of joy it's not needing any to get somewhere or get something in order to be fulfilled it's it's fulfilling unto itself it's that you think of it as the joy of the journey as compared to the you know the relief of getting to the destination i think that distinction is so important because i have always thought it's like okay it's the cake that provides the dopamine each time or you know whatever it is but the realization that yeah the first time it's the cake but after that it is associated with the craving itself <clears throat> and it seems like if we're able to um, create some space around the situation and realize, okay, this this feeling is, at least the way I look at it, this is an illusion of how it will feel when I get the cake. Right now, like this is a neurochemical state that is manipulating my, trying to manipulate my actions. And so if I can say, the cake itself is not rewarding. Like this is just kind of sitting in that almost like a, like a cold shower moment where you're just like, whoo, this is super uncomfortable right now, but this is, this is an illusion. This is not going to benefit me. Mm-hmm. So feel, learning to feel that discomfort is tremendously helpful. And also knowing that if we scratch that itch, it's just going to become itchier mm-hmm. and that we actually have that bigger, better offer. So as we learn, so for example, uh, we talked about this already. Curiosity is an open state. So open states feel better, more rewarding than closed states. So when we have a craving, when we feel that itch, what happens when we bring curiosity to that moment and get curious? Oh, what does this itch feel Interesting. like? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we can actually hack the process right there and flip that valence from that closed feeling of craving to more of an open feeling of curiosity. Oh, craving. Where do I feel this in my body? What does this feel like? Can I unpack these sensations and explore what's happening in this moment? You know, I'll give you an example. I had a patient, I was working at the VA hospital and I had a patient who came into my office. He wanted to quit smoking. And he said, doc, you know, I feel like if I don't smoke, my head will explode. And so we, we went to my whiteboard and I said, okay, what does head exploding feel like? And we started mapping it out as his craving was building. So it was like tightness and tension and mm-hmm. restlessness and this and that. And so I said, okay, you know, as these were growing, I said, what do you typically do at the, at the peak of this? And he said, well, I smoke and then it goes away. Okay, well, let's, you're not going to smoke in my office. So <laughs> let's, let's see what happens next. So we got to the peak and he's like, oh, wow. And then it started to lessen and he gets this big bright eyed look in his face. He's like, oh, wow, it goes away and I don't have to smoke. So we learned two critical things. Wow. One was that these were just these physical sensations. And as he got curious about them, he could be with them without having this moral imperative that I have to smoke. And that these these things themselves go away on their own. So curiosity and awareness are these kind of central tenets of mindfulness practice, this beginner's mind. And your research, which we've just really glossed over very briefly, has demonstrated the uh, effectiveness in you know multiple different conditions as well as just quality of life. And I'm wondering... Uh, how long is it, um, or will it ever, mindfulness that is, become kind of a standard of care for not just mental illness, but classically physiological diseases? <laughs> well, it's not going to be, it's certainly not a panacea, you know, and so we can't say cancer, mindfulness, you know, it's not going to cure cancer. Uh, but I think we can use the approach that cancer researchers use as a as a way to think about this. So 
you know, if you think of cancer research 60 years ago when they were first coming out with the first chemotherapeutics like Vin Christine and these things that were, they were basically, they just kill everything in sight. Right. And the idea is to kill everything. And if you killed the cancer before you died, then you won, <laughs> right? So there were huge, uh, huge issues with morbidity and side effects and mortality with these cancer treatments. That's because we didn't know what the cancer pathways were. Now we can, uh, we can really understand cancer at a very, very subtle level. One of my best friends is a, is a cancer researcher. He sequences the entire genome of each one of his patients. Wow. And so he can find out these specific pathways, multiple pathways that are disrupted in these different cancers, and he can target them very, very specifically, get nice you know, remission rates with very low side effects. We can take the same approach with behavioral treatment. So we can look to see where are people stuck in habit loops? around specific behaviors. So all addictions share this same habit loop. We can even see, you know, with eating, when people are stress eating or overeating or addicted to sugar or those things, those habit loops are still in play. But we even see this with anxiety, where people reinforce anxiety through worry in a negatively reinforcing process. You know, so some negative emotion, there's the trigger, somebody worries as a way to try to feel in control or distract themselves, there's the behavior. And then that feeling of control is that reward. So they're even reinforcing these there. So we could see how mindfulness training could be helpful for for these processes that that clearly have mechanistic pathways uh, related to reward-based learning. So... For those types of things, it might be really helpful to uh, to do this. Now, here I would say, how long does it take? Well, on average, when a new treatment has been shown to be effective, it takes about 17 years for that to be implemented in healthcare. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's the average. Yeah. Uh, so it takes a long time for things to be implemented. Uh, that being said, I, I'm hoping that we can speed up that process. And I think digital therapeutics are a way to help that, where you can rapidly iterate and really zoom in on, you know, what's what's a good mechanistic target? How can you target that? And can you deliver a treatment that is evidence and mechanistically based? You know, can you deliver that in an effective way? So there we hope to speed up the process with these types of things. So for example, we've even developed app-based mindfulness training programs. We did right. one for smoking. Um, that was based on an in-person study where we got five times the quit rates of smoking, of gold standard treatment for smoking cessation. We just followed that up with a, uh, a neuroimaging study with our Craving to Quit app uh, where we could scan people, put people in the fMRI scanner at baseline uh, show them smoking images, those triggers, activate specific brain pathways that are known to be activated when people get caught up in craving, and then randomize them to get our Craving to Quit app or the National Cancer Institute's app, and then a month later scan their brains and see if we could predict outcomes. Long story short, we got really strong correlation between reduced brain activity in the Craving to Quit group only and outcomes. Uh, but not in the National Cancer Institute's app. And we even found a dose-dependent relationship. The more wow. modules they completed, the better they did. The National Cancer Institute's app, they did the same number of modules, no correlation at all. In fact, we could account for 58% of the variance, which is three variables with the Craven and Quick group. No variance was accounted for in the control group, basically saying, you know, you could explain a lot of what was happening uh, based on this, this intervention in a randomized controlled trial. So we can even target you know, specific brain mechanisms 
get nice results. Um, we, we did a study that was published a couple of years ago with our Eat Right Now app in obese and overweight women, found a 40% reduction in craving-related eating. We just completed a randomized controlled trial. We haven't even published this yet. We're just, just doing this now. Um, with our Unwinding Anxiety app, where you know targeting these negative reinforcement pathways, are you ready for this? We got a 63% reduction in generalized anxiety disorder seven scale. So these clinically validated measures, 63% reduction, huge difference between our active, you know, the the Unwinding Anxiety program and the control, you know, which was treatment as usual. And you know, here if this were a drug. 63% reduction, that would be, it would be a miracle drug, right? right. Um, we calc- there's this, this calculation you can make called the number needed to treat, right? right? Where, which is a simple way to kind of compare different treatments. So for example, gold standard medications, the number needed to treat is between five and six, which means you need to treat between five and six people to see an effect in one person. The number needed to treat for our Unwinding Anxiety app, 1.6. That's unheard of. So, you know, granted, first randomized controlled trial, we need to replicate it, et cetera. Although we just did, did a study with uh, anxious physicians. It wasn't a randomized controlled trial, but it was, you know, we just wanted to see if phys- anxious physicians would do mm-hmm. this. We got the same net magnitude of effect. We got a 57% reduction in, in anxiety score, same scale, GAD7. Uh, and we also found a 50% reduction in certain uh, measures of burnout. So it turns out that anxiety and certain parts of burnout, uh, like uh, depersonalization, are highly correlated. There's a 0.7 correlation, mm. and it makes a lot of sense. You know, if you're if you're trying to put yourself in your patient's shoes and your patients are suffering, then you're gonna you're gonna suffer. You're gonna get this empathy fatigue. Mm-hmm. Yet, if you can learn to not take their suffering personally you can start to be with that suffering and then compassion naturally arises because we're not spending that energy to protect ourselves because we're not worried about protecting ourselves. We can learn, oh, I don't have to take this personally. That's what mindfulness is all about, not taking things personally. So we could help people reduce their anxiety, not take things personally, and without even mentioning burnout once in the app, we're seeing this 50% reduction in depersonalization in you know in anxious physicians because the two are highly correlated and i'm assuming the number needed to harm is relatively low here (laughs) the counterpart uh to the nnt um yeah i wanted to briefly talk about burnout so a program that um, i'm working on with another student at the university of tennessee uh, called cope kind of aims to bring mindfulness uh, training uh, in from the student level instead of kind of a top-down approach more of a grassroots approach to try to integrate it into the culture um and something that i've recognized and i'm interested in hearing if if you've also experienced this is the word mindfulness uh it's first of all relatively ambiguous i think but i also have noticed some eye rolling uh beginning to happen around the word mindfulness and as someone who you know this has been a practice that has greatly benefited me I'm wondering how can we avoid kind of this stigmatization around mindfulness, especially for these physicians who, uh, let's face it, are typically kind of type A, um, oftentimes quite self-critical and a little bit um, uh, quantitative and maybe not as curious or at least maybe more of the deprivation curiosity than the interested curiosity. So what do we do around this word mindfulness? Do we yeah. 
I would say we could throw it out the window. Okay. So you can take the elements of what mindfulness kind of the concept of mindfulness brings forward and you can just focus on those elements. So mindfulness brings forward elements of awareness and an attitude of curiosity. So we could just focus on helping, you know, for example, physicians say, okay, well, is it easier to make a di diagnosis if you pay attention, if you're aware, if you're paying attention when you're listening to somebody's heart or listening mm -hmm. to somebody's lungs or, you know, whatever, or not pay attention, right? Duh. Well, when right. you pay attention, you can actually gather that information more, more readily and it's more accurate. Okay. So bring in awareness. But the other piece is, you know, if we're doing a differential diagnosis, if we're jumping to a conclusion, are we going to be more likely to help our patient or more likely to harm our patient, right? That's this adage of first do no harm. So the idea with the differential diagnosis is to not jump to conclusions and to wait until all the data are gathered. And then we say, okay, what's the most likely diagnosis? And then not get locked into that if it turns out not to be true when our lab results come back or whatever. We're like, okay, that was my differential. If we become attached to that, like, yes, I got the right diagnosis. And then somebody's like, but this lab doesn't support it. No, no, but it was true. By, you know, so true. <laughs> then it's about us and it's not about our patient. So we can think about this as awareness. And curiosity or not jumping to conclusions, non-judgment, right? Not becoming attached to an outcome. And so that's how I think of it is, okay, sure. let's train people to be aware in a curious way. And well, as, as a side effect, curiosity feels pretty good. You know, when we're just totally into a very interesting case, we're like, wow, this is fascinating. You know, it they could even be have, this, it could be this, yeah, you know. Right, they even make television shows about doctors and these weird diagnoses because it's just so fun to be, you know, to be that sleuth. What was it, house? And yeah, all these, yeah, exactly. All these things where it's like, oh, wow, cool, it's fun to learn. You know, why not take that approach to everything? I mean, Life is so much more fun when we're just curious as compared to judging everything. Right. So we don't need the word mindfulness okay. at all. I we like could that. just say awareness, curiosity. And that kind of covers it. Yeah. As you were kind of describing that process of being curious in medicine, kind of the cynic in me was a little bit concerned about just the whole paradigm that we use in medicine, this very kind of fake it till you make it sometimes like act confident, even if you don't know the answer and even just sheer quantification of just darn near everything oh well if you can't see the results if you can't quantify it then it, it you know doesn't exist and that seems very anti-curious and so i'm wondering where's this line between yeah we need to like we need to show that this you know this effect exists but like we also want to remain curious uh, where do you sit on that i don't see any downside to being curious so if we are you know if we're learning how to do a lumbar puncture or something and we're like, oh, I know how to do this. And then we go and, you know, you know, harm our patient. That's a problem. <laughs> so much better to be curious and be like, you know, I've not done this before. Can somebody, you know, and get our resident to help yeah. us, you know, help us guide us through that. There's nothing wrong with that. And that's going to benefit us. We're going to learn it. That's going to benefit our patient. We're more, more less likely to uh, cause unintended, unintended harm, you know, all those things. And there's nothing wrong with not knowing. There's this thing, you know, I think when people are scared or they are insecure, then they might, you know, there might be this posturing where it's like, oh, I got to show that I'm smart. 
Well, you know what? The smartest people are the ones that are just in there and curious. And they're like, oh, what's going on? What's going on? Let's figure this out. Nobody's like, oh, boy, I can't believe you're curious. That's terrible. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It reminds me of, um, are you familiar with Dan Siegel's work out in, he's at UCLA. And uh, I was reading one of his books and he was talking about as a um, pediatric resident in the ER, uh, a patient came in with a headache and he did um, an ocular exam and he just he noticed this kind of feeling, uh, this perception that there was there was some extra like blurriness in the eye that he wasn't kind of accustomed to, and uh, his his kind of supervisor said, "Oh, I don't know, I don't see it." And an ophthalmologist came in and said, "Oh, I don't I don't think so." And they wanted they wanted him to tap the kid. Um, and obviously if, you know, you have this extra ocular pressure, potentially you could cause herniation and, you know, kill the kid or leave him paralyzed. So through that curiosity and kind of not just curious about the patient, but curious about what was, um, what he was perceiving within himself, he made the right clinical choice. Mm -hmm. And I think that a story like that would get kind of disparaged by many people in conventional medicine. Oh, you know, listen to yourself kind of sounds like woo woo, but, it seems like this is actually super, super important to being a good physician. Yeah, and I would say it's not about, it's about listening to when we notice something that's off, right? A lot of medicine is about pattern recognition. Right, yeah. And so if we jump to a conclusion, we say, oh, no, that can't be something. Well, that's actually doing a disservice to us and to our patients. So this is about being, you know, like being open-minded, and being willing to not know, being willing to explore, and also being willing to show vulnerability, yes. right? And, you know, who said that we have to know everything as doctors? Like, where did that come from? Where, like, oh, I need to put up this front to my patients that I know everything. You know, guess what? As soon as you do a mistake, you've lost all your credibility anyway. For sure. Whereas I've never seen a patient be like, oh, I can't believe, you know, why are you so curious? You know, why yeah. why are you saying you don't know and you're going to look it up? I would much rather, <laughs> as a patient, you're when not. my doctor said, you know, let me figure this out as compared to saying sweating and saying, oh, I think I know what's going on. You know, you can, yeah. you can see that And then the patient the also can pick up on that. Yeah, like, and you see it across the room. So earlier you were talking about the effectiveness of mindfulness and smoking cessation and awareness, really a huge improvement over the uh, standard of care. And there's another study that came to my mind in respect to blasting away the standard of care in terms of smoking addiction, and it was one with uh, psilocybin and the use of psilocybin to uh, break addiction. Uh, And I believe this particular study was alongside um, therapy. But um, I know there's also a study out of the um, University College of London where they injected IV psilocybin and then uh, did fMRI imaging mm-hmm. to see kind of how it was affecting the acute state. And I guess that's my segue to just asking kind of where is with mindfulness becoming more popular and more kind of accepted by conventional medicine and mindfulness really mirroring a lot of the effects of uh, something like psilocybin. What does the future of kind of psychedelic medicine look like? Well, I can certainly uh, give you some baseless speculation, some BS. Uh, and because you really have to ask folks like Robin Carhart Harris and Roland Griffiths and all those folks who are this, the experts there. Uh, but interestingly, when we did our first study of experienced meditators, uh, our first fMRI study, we found that this default mode network, this region I was mentioning earlier, 
um, that gets activated when people get caught up in craving, it gets deactivated in experienced meditators where they're literally not getting caught up in their experience. We've been, done a bunch of neurophenomenologic experiments to confirm this. We even had Anderson Cooper come in with 60 minutes <laughs> and try it out like on camera and so we can watch his brain go up and down based on him getting caught up in anxiety and meditating. Uh, it, it, I think it was two months after we had published that first paper in the same journal. So we published this in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Two months later, Robin Carhart-Harris publishes his first paper with IV psilocybin, you know, the magic mushrooms ingredient, the active ingredient there, and found literally the same network was deactivated. I immediately contacted him. I said, this can't be a coincidence. And, you know, we, and, you know, we just went nuts talking about this. You know, it's great. Uh, and then... So it looks like the same network is is uh, affected, whether it's psilocybin, psychedelics, probably in general, or uh, or mindfulness training. So one way I think about this, and and I've mused with Roland uh, Griffiths about this, is you know could we could we use psychedelics as a way to show people what it feels like to let go? You know what it what that literally ex- mind expanding, right? We're getting back to this open mm-hmm. or expanded quality of experience. Can we show people what that feels like on a on a very large scale? Uh, some you know, very very large scale for some people the way they feel it. Can we show them that and then train them to do that on their own using mindfulness training? So I think of this as you know, any moment we can be feeling contracted or we can be feeling expanded, and any moment we can tap into this reward based learning mechanism. It's about trigger, you know, looking at that cause and effect relationship, whether you look at the ancient Buddhist psychology or you look at modern day psychology, it's about all about cause and effect, right? What's the reward or the result of a behavior? If it's rewarding, we're going to do it again. If it's not rewarding, we're going to stop, right? So can we help people notice, okay, if I'm doing this behavior, does it feel contracting or does it feel more expanding? So we can look at that cause and effect relationship. And if it feels contracting, we can just pay attention, kind of rub our nose in that. And like, how rewarding is that, right? Like smoking a cigarette or overeating or feeling or worrying, you know, and when we see that it's not that rewarding, we're going to naturally start to uh, let go of that behavior. But we can also pay attention to the cause and effect relationship when we're curious or when we're being kind or when we're connected with somebody. And we can see, oh, when I hold the door for somebody, it feels good. It feels expanded. Oh, and our brain says, well, do that again. <laughs> you know, silly. So we can even learn to do these things without having to take a bunch of, you know, psychedelics by simply paying attention to that cause and effect relationship. Focus on the reward of reward-based learning. If it's not rewarding, we're going to stop doing it. If it's more rewarding, we're going to keep doing it. And I think, you know, mindfulness itself, or let's say awareness and curiosity, we can even see how rewarding it is to be curious to the point where we just naturally are more and more curious. And so I, you know, personally, I'd much rather be curious about something than locked in to be like, oh, yes, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to hold on to this idea until death. Well, that seems painful because it is. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> so, so it's helpful. I could see it being helpful to have things like psychedelics to help people feel what this expanded feeling feels like. 
But yet once we tap into that and we can orient ourselves toward that North Star, we can train ourselves to move in that direction um, all the time through mindfulness training. That's actually, I wrote a lot about that in my book, you know, the, the craving mind around like we might actually be orienting ourselves in the wrong direction because that excited quality is what everybody t tells us is, is that is what happiness is. Mm -hmm. But as soon as we start to see, wow, this isn't as happy as being joyful and connected. I want to go that way. And then we just to help ourselves see that cause and effect relationship and just rinse and repeat. So my vision for medicine is to change the standard of care for chronic disease because we're, we're not doing so great in that department. And it seems to me, for at least from my perspective, that chronic disease, you know, I used to think that the cure to all chronic diseases was, you know, we need more yoga studios and Whole Foods on the corner kind of thing. But then as I started looking into it more, I realized, oh, this is a, this is a mindset thing because our mindset and our self-awareness determine our habits and our habits really precipitate some of these chronic diseases. And it seems like psychedelic medicine and mindfulness both are on the really far upstream of all of these other chronic diseases, not just mental health, but like if we're saying, if we're attributing obesity and diabetes and hypertension and all these other things to narrative making and identity and what we tell ourselves about ourselves, then mindfulness and psychedelics for that matter potentially are at the very far um, kind of upstream of that. Is that is that something that you would agree with or uh, am I looking at it in a different I, I way? I think that's part of the picture, but you all, we also have to remember the the lenses through which we see the world, right? For you sure. Know, I'm, I'm a white educated male and so I'm going to see the world through a certain way. I think we can look at habit formation, not just on a personal level, which is critical. I think that's what you're highlighting, but also on a societal level. So if we can understand how habits form, we can start to also bring this to policy and we can start to bring yes. this to places like, oh, well, where there are food deserts, you know, and we are, um, you know, we're, we're packing low income neighborhoods with convenience stores that only have you know, calorie dense uh, and non-nutritive uh, food-like things. I wouldn't even call, you know, a lot of this stuff food. It isn't, yeah. <laughs> um, we can start to change those habits on, on a societal level. Mm -hmm. And I think those are just as critical uh, as changing this on a personal level. But all of it boils down to understanding how the mind works. Yeah, it's to that point, it seems like we're living in what I would consider like a hyper palatable society. Everything tastes better. Everything um, is quicker in terms of reinforcement. And it seems like, I don't know if we can turn back the dial at all or if we really even want to, but it seems really challenging to undo some of this. Or it seems, it seems challenging to move forward if we don't start making things a little less palatable. But I, I really don't know how to reconcile that because we certainly don't want to step back as far as like technology and stuff goes because that's also moving us forward. Yeah, and I don't. I think that would take a tremendous amount of energy because there's there's a momentum. tremendous amount of, of momentum and money behind things like you know food industry and things like that. Exactly. So I think the way to focus is to really help people become aware. So for example, I can't imagine that you know whatever the hyper palatable food is we can make it as perfectly palatable as possible but it still is really hard to beat the real thing in terms of everything that comes with it so mm. you know you can design something to be food like to get people addicted to it but that addicted feeling itself doesn't feel good 
So for example, eating, you know, for me, it was like eating gummy worms versus blueberries. You know, when I really started paying attention, I realized these things taste kind of like petroleum products. Whereas blueberries, the perfect sweet for me, the perfect sweetness, the, um, the texture, the everything, the mouthfeel, it's hard to beat that. And the after effect is I actually feel energized as compared to get into my sugar coma. So it's going to be, you know, there are consequences that come with hyperpalatability, which, you know, obesity, just mood, you know, food as mood generator is, is huge. And when we can help people link up that cause and effect relationship, that reward value starts to drop. They're like, wow, I feel, you know, every time I eat a chocolate chip cookie, I just have this craving to eat another one. It doesn't even taste that great. And I get the sugar comb afterwards. Well, what's it like comparing that to eating, you know, some, you know, just some nice you know, blueberries or, you know, combination of fruit or things like that. So we can, we can actually just using awareness, we can help people bring that to what's actually happening. And it's going to be really hard to outcompete what has kind of evolved over such a long period of time to be, you know, perfect in, in, or as, as good as it can get right now around like helping our brain say, okay, this is going to be a long-term sustainable, like, you know, whole food, um, you know, non-processed, that type of thing. Yeah. It seems like the challenge we have here is just, at least from my perspective, convincing people that there's something to be found on the other side of this experience, because we talk about it and you do a very eloquent job of explaining why it works and, you know, the effectiveness, but I, it's, it's convincing someone that there's actually something worthwhile on the other side of sitting down in the same spot and just following your breath for a little while. And yeah, and I wouldn't necessarily start with following one's breath, but the place there to, to start would be where's somebody suffering, mm -hmm. you know, then that's what we started with, you know, so if somebody's trying to quit smoking and they've struggled, there's a pain point for them. Okay, let's bring awareness training in there. Now they're suddenly interested in learning mindfulness where they wouldn't, wouldn't be otherwise. Oh, somebody's struggling with overeating. Okay, well, here's something that has a 40% reduction in craving-related eating. Are you interested? Yes, I'm interested. Are you anxious? 63% reduction. Are you interested? Yeah. Hell yeah. Tell me about it, yeah. you know? So I find that even just bringing the science to people, mm. it, you know, is really when there's a pain point, they're going to look mm. for a pain reliever as compared to trying to convince somebody, hey, you know, everybody knows they should exercise. Everybody knows they should eat better, but they're just not doing it. So our job is to rub their face in their old behaviors and ask how rewarding actually is this? Yeah. And they're like, wow, it's not that great. I didn't notice that before. Okay, here's a pain reliever. And humans are led by belief. And it seems like I, I it just kind of connected why it's so important to quantify these, you know, you know, Eastern practices, things that are viewed as kind of, oh, like this isn't conventional medicine. It's, but it's super important to bring the effectiveness research to the table because this is how we we do convince people that there's something on the other side of this. Well, and also as physicians, we want to we do evidence-based practices. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's fair. I know we're short on time, so um, I love to ask a couple of kind of rapid-fire questions. Sure. Um, you can take as long uh, with these as you would like to. Are you familiar with the Pareto principle, 80-20? Uh, Vaguely. Okay, so the idea is that um, what is the 20% of action that precipitates 80% of the results? Okay. Uh, so what are you know the really high-yield... Um, things in any situation. And so I would ask you, what is the 20% for health and um, a life of, of meaning? I would say training people to become aware of the consequences of their behaviors. 
Okay. Um, I would say that's the 5% that's that the, would create 95%. <laughs> I wouldn't disagree with that. So right now, um, as there always has been, there's lots of dogma and finger pointing accusations about what does and doesn't work in medicine and health. And I'm wondering who is going to have to get along or start uh, cooperating or start listening and being more curious in order for us to really move the needle when it comes to chronic disease. I would say we all have to step out of dogmatic viewpoints, every single one of us. And so anytime we're convinced that something's right, that's when we can guarantee that we're probably wrong. So we all have to step out and remember what our goal is, which is to help people and to improve health. And so if everybody has that as a shared goal, then it's going to be much easier to get along. And then just follow science you know we can all agree to be curious and say well let's find what works best because that's the goal as compared to i want my thing to work best who cares Mm -hmm. i don't care whose thing works best i just want to help people and so let's all let go of our fixed views of what we want to work and just remember what our goal is which is to help people and then hopefully we could all get along a little bit more I uh, I talk about this uh, quite a bit, but that really reminds me of uh, of acceptance and commitment therapy. This idea of having a value and living life in congruence with that value, despite some of the pain, uh, aka um, you know swallowing your ego and your pride that comes along with that. And so that seems like a good kind of framework. Sure, and I think you can even simplify that to: Is it painful to have an ego? versus not have an ego you know humility feels much better than having an ego and an ego takes a tremendous amount of energy to support and mm-hmm. to defend whereas if you're humble who cares if you're wrong you know you can you can use that energy to yeah, be curious that's that growth mindset right yeah um all right so as physicians and future physicians uh we're lifelong learners and really it's just as humans that's that's kind of something that we uh brings fulfillment i think and so i'm curious what are you finding yourself learning more about right now you know i spent last summer diving into the deep end around curiosity itself you know and i wanted to really understand what the science scientific basis was for that Mm -hmm. you know we'd been seeing this experientially in our app-based mindfulness training programs where people were just naturally coming back to curiosity over and over and over and how it just seems to be this superpower so that was the thing I really dove into a lot. And we're really trying to understand, you know, how does this fit with reward-based learning? You know, w- these two different types of curiosity may be a great way to explore this more. So that's something that I'm very curious about and okay. happy to keep exploring. What is one class or course, besides mindfulness and awareness and curiosity, that uh, you would you would like to be taught in medical school that is currently not well i think one thing i wish i had learned was just this basic reward-based learning piece like if there were a class that just taught us how our mind works in that respect boy that would have benefited me so much this i think it would benefit anybody who's in any frontline well actually all physicians are you know in clinic one way or the other mm-hmm. uh, i'm just maybe anesthesiologists or something are not seeing clinic patients so much 
But if I had had that course just to understand how our minds work, it would have helped me so much with everything from helping people lose weights to work with anxiety to whatever. Uh, we actually created a free CME course specifically for healthcare providers because this was something that I'd wished I had learned in medical school and it's been so helpful for me. Would this fall under the category of self-mastery? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And then what is something, and in the spirit of curiosity and openness, what is something that you used to be super confident about that you, um, you've partially or completely changed your mind about? <laughs> Great question. Because uh, I'm not sure that I'm confident about anything except um, just seeing this reward-based learning piece play out everywhere from my own life to my patients to everything else. So... Well, I can let me reframe that question then um, based on your answer. Uh, where does can you think of a circumstance in which this lens that we're using here, um, awareness, curiosity, reward based learning doesn't doesn't work in the spirit of being anti dogmatic? Right. Well, it certainly you know, doesn't work, for example, with genetic disorders or, you know, I could see I can think of a many different things where there are literally physical things that, you know, like a, a protein kinase pathway that's messed up or, you know, when somebody's going into withdrawal with alcohol use disorder and their, you know, their, their brain is screaming out for their, you know, their, um, the receptors to be soothed, so to speak. Uh, mindfulness certainly won't work there, you know, pay attention to that. And you're like, wow, yeah, my you know, going into DTs or delirium tremens, yeah. you know, hard to pay attention when you're in delirium mm -hmm. tremens or when you're having a seizure. <laughs> okay. So the acuity sometimes might be, um, the acuteness of the situation might predispose it not to being a super helpful lens to view. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, certainly being aware and checking somebody's labs or checking to see if somebody's going into withdrawal is helpful. But anywhere there's a physiologic thing happening, uh, I would say, I guess you could bring awareness, but really figure out what that is and then fix that physiologic thing. Mm -hmm. I think this is where Western medicine's particularly good. For sure. Is, you know, oh, here's an acid base imbalance. Okay, we can, you know, we can generally work on that you know here somebody's going into withdrawal okay let's give them benzos you know let's let's you know, let's treat this you know somebody's having a seizure let's do this so there are things that we can do uh for the physiologic thing problems where mindfulness certainly isn't going to help well however i will say that from the habit forming standpoint we kind of want there to be some habits surrounding you know what happens when someone shows up and they're uh you know more than likely in DTs or more than likely having an MI or whatever. And it's like, it's helpful that be have those habits so that you can, you don't have to spend as much mental energy on what am I doing versus like working with the differential. That's an excellent point. You know, having a habit down around running a code, it's probably helpful. You know, if we all had to relearn how to run a code every time, there would be many fewer codes that were yeah. actually yeah. successful. <laughs> excellent yeah. point. This is actually the last question because uh, I wrote down, I had to ask you. You wrote The Craving Mind in two weeks, right? Generally, yes. I mean, I wrote one chapter to see if I could write, uh, but I did it as an exercise in, uh, in awareness to see. So I went on self-retreat. Okay. And my, you know, my mission, should I 
choose to have accepted it was um, to sit, walk and write and to only write when I was in flow, when I was just when it was just coming out of my fingers. And so I went on self retreats. I sat, I walked and I wrote and I stopped writing anytime I felt contracted. And the book was finished two weeks later. Yeah, that it was. It was, it was a, <laughs> yeah, a crazy there, there, experience. I've never heard of that before, and I, yeah, I'm just I'm, I foresee myself writing a book at some point, and I was just like gawking at the idea of of cranking that out in two weeks. So the the caveat there, or the asterisk there, is that it was think of it as twenty years in two weeks. So I'd done uh, yeah. twenty years worth of research and my own mindfulness practice and all this. And then it was all that stuff was there and it was had consolidated and it was ready. It was kind of like it was ready to be born. Mm -hmm. And so the key was me getting out of my own way and letting the writing just come out. And Mm -hmm. I I learned that I could do this. I remember sitting down and writing a paper once in three hours like and it was published remarkably fast because it was just I think it was coherent, you know, but it just came out. I sat down one Saturday morning. And just bam, the whole paper came out because I was ready. You know, I had been thinking through these ideas so much and trying them out and talking about them and doing research. And so it was like, like, wow, that was fun. Yeah. So I realized that this can happen. This can be done. But the conditions have to be right. You can't just make stuff up. Right. You You have to walk the walk for, as you said, 20 years. And I think that, you know, that process uh, of actually doing this stuff made it just swoop. So the the conditions came together where I'd, I'd kind of done the research, knew what I wanted to write about, but also was really paying attention to when am I getting stuck trying to force the writing. And I would just have, I disciplined myself to stop as compared to, oh, I just got to get this chapter done, right? Destination as compared to journey and say, okay, it's not there right now. I remember, you know, like tightening up. Going and sitting and walking, not even not thinking about it at all, just sitting and walking. And then the next morning I sat down and it was like, That's and the rest of that temper just came out. It was like it self-organized in my brain while I was I was just being present. And so those were the conditions where I all the stuff was there. And I was also I knew what it felt to be contracted and what it felt like to let go. And to know that it was more fan- painful to try to force the writing than not to. Oh. The, the fact that you could use the practice in order to write the book about the practice, I think was it demonstrates the effectiveness and the authenticity of everything that you're doing. Yeah. Well, it certainly uh, is rewarding for me. <laughs> nice, nice way to bring that back. Well, I want to be respectful of your time, and I'm very, very appreciative of you sitting down with me. Between the work you're doing uh, here at the Mindfulness Center, and then your book and your TED Talk, definitely it's hard to quantify the number of people you've impacted with this. So uh, I'm very grateful for the work you're doing and sitting down with me and talking to you today. It's my pleasure. This podcast is for general informational purposes only and doesn't constitute medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information and the material of this podcast is at the user's own risk. Guests who speak on the podcast express their own opinions, experience, and conclusions. The content of this podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice. Listeners should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any treatment of conditions.